The privilege and the joy that is each of ours this morning to come together is one that's truly magnificent and grand in every sense of the word. For as the psalmist of old declared, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, verse 24. Today, as we are assembled in the recognition of the goodness of God, on the first day of the week to come together by His decree and His order, let us continue our series of studies and lessons today that concerns the grand and glorious body of the church. To do that, we might well begin by rehearsing just a bit where we have come to this point. You might remember that in that study of the church, we have attempted to better understand, to better appreciate, and to better apply to our own realization the character and beauty of the church. You and I live in a day and in an age in which the church typically is recognized no higher, no better, no grander than many other institutions on earth, and that simply is a false view. The church is that blessed body that costs the blood of our Savior. It is the body that stands alone as the one institution Jesus ever founded. He only founded one. And thus, to appreciate and better understand it is indeed worthy of our greatest intent. Two weeks ago, as we began this series, we attempted to understand better that the church is the kingdom of God, that it is the body of Christ, and that it is the pillar and ground of the truth. To do that, we appreciated that it was spoken of in prophecy hundreds of years before it came into being. And all the while, as those prophets anxiously awaited the day to be established, they never lived to see it happen. But then, last Lord's Day, we asked the fundamental and basic question, how many churches are there? We live in an age and in a world encumbered with denominational ideas and thoughts, and though there may appear to be hundreds, if not thousands, of acceptable bodies, the Word of God nonetheless declares in clear and unmistakable tones there is one body, Ephesians 4, verse 4. That immediately led us then to ask, then if there is but one body, meaning that there is but one church, how do I identify it? What means could be utilized in order to ascertain and clearly know which one then is the one, if any of them are, that is approved by the God of heaven? That led us to the lesson last Lord's Day evening. We noted one way is by utilizing the concept of the name. Is the name worn by those believers a Bible-approved name? For after all, Colossians 3.17 declares, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. However, that is but one characteristic. Might there be others? To lead us to where we're going to end up today, let me tell a brief story, or at least make usage of a particular example. If there were a parking lot filled with 500 cars, and I ask you to go and retrieve something out of my car for me, what information would you need to know? Out of all the 500 cars, how would you know which one's mine? How would you know which one I meant, or to one to which I referred? Well, what if I said that it's a Honda? That clearly would eliminate many of the possibilities, wouldn't it? That would eliminate Chevrolets, Chryslers, Toyotas, anything other than a Honda you would know would not be the one I had in mind. Suppose I further said it's a silver Honda. Well, that would then eliminate not only all others except Hondas, but it would eliminate white, black, brown, yellow, orange, any other color Honda. There may still, though, be more than one silver Honda. 
Are there any other pieces of information? Suppose I said it's a silver Honda CRV. Well, at this point, we have limited it down, but we might appreciate the fact that that still may not be enough information. Could there be more than one silver Honda CRV? Of course, there could. What if I, in addition, gave you a license plate number? By using those four pieces of information, one by one, you could systematically eliminate every vehicle in that parking lot except one. And by using all of them together, you would be able to find, to be able to determine, to be able to identify the one car that I had in mind, the one that belonged to me. I wonder, would the same approach be possible with regard to church? Are there characteristics that might be utilized and by employing them to systematically eliminate everybody of believers that's not that one approved in heaven? I believe we'll find the answer to be yes. And today, let us look at three of them. We might know that we've already studied the one about the name, but let us look at three others today that in fact would be rather important and powerful. And let us consider the first one at the outset. As Brother John noted a moment ago, the title of the lesson, the establishment of the church, who, where, and when. Let's look at who. Who established the church? Might we know at the outset the significance and the importance of this characteristic? For it is not an arbitrary matter. Who established it? Let's in fact put together the scriptures in such a way to answer this with absolute clarity. Jesus had stated in Matthew 16 verse 18 as he spoke with his apostles there in Caesarea Philippi, namely Peter had just confessed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to that Jesus responded, Thou art the Christ. I'm sorry, Jesus responded that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is a true thing that we have labored already in this series and placed emphasis upon the I, and we've placed emphasis upon other matters of the sentence, but notice the prefix, or the word my, the possessive adjective. Jesus said, it's my church and I will build it. It belongs to no one else and no other person will build it. We can then see in this initial statement that the blessed church approved in heaven was established by Christ and no other. But consider some other things that in fact greatly amplify that understanding. In Acts 2 verse 47, the very last verse of that noble second chapter in Acts, we notice there that it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Notice, who was it that was adding to the church? It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't humanity in any form. It was the Lord. And Jesus Christ is Lord of all, isn't he? Acts 10, verse 36. Isn't it amazing to consider then that this body that Jesus said he would build obviously was in existence by that point, for he was adding individuals to it. Later, the Hebrew writer would say in Hebrews 3, verse 6, referring to the character of believers, he said, unlike Moses, who was merely a servant in the house, this Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of our hope unto the end. We can then easily see then that this church is one that came into being and its founder, its builder, the one who brought it into its very existence was none other than Jesus the Christ. 
the remarkable feature, in fact, then, is that Christ is the head of the church. Not only did he build it, he is its head. And he is the head of the body, the church. That statement of Colossians 1 verse 18 reminds us then that Christ has all preeminence in the church. That word preeminence has a very interesting meaning. It means to have the highest rank, the highest dignity. It means to hold first place. Christ thus is one who not only built the church, but he, in an ever-present sense, has top priority in it. Doesn't that remind us of that statement back in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20? In fact, even prior to his ascension to heaven, Jesus, in addressing of those gathered apostles, said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. And thus, in that statement, we know as Jesus first admitted that all power resided and rested with him, but then in application he said, You teach all what I have taught you. That clearly implies all the authority rested with Jesus. He's head of the church. To speak then of that headship in any other fashion leads us to directly conclude that with regard to the church, Jesus is supreme, he is chief, he is preeminent. That is one crystal clear characteristic then of the church. Any body of believers, any body of people, any religious organization that was not founded by Christ and does not claim him absolutely as head cannot possibly be the church. Now to claim him as head and yet to do something different than what he has declared is absolute nonsense. How can he be Lord if we do not follow that which he's taught? Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And thus, as a body of people, he's not our Lord unless we do all that he's commanded in the way he has commanded it. That's the one characteristic of the church. We must compare the teaching, the doctrine, that which a given body of believers sets forth with what the Lord taught. If there are any discrepancies, if there's anything different, then that body's not the church. But to say that, that addresses the who part. Amazingly enough, there's more to be said from Acts chapter 2, isn't there? You'll notice in the title he said, Who, where, and when. Well, notice the following with me. What about the date of establishment? Do we have any information about when the church was established? Consider that with me in a bit more detail. When was the church established? In the very same way with that car example we listed earlier. If we had said it's a 2004 model vehicle, that would eliminate any car other than that particular model. Well, with regard to the church, do we know when? Let us search the scriptures with a degree of diligence to see if we can together answer that question. We understand full well that the church was spoken of in prophecy long before the body actually came into existence. Isaiah and Micah alike testified of it in marvelous wonder. Isaiah 2 verses 1 to 4, Micah chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. But Notice, if you would with me, the tenses of the verbs in several texts. They're very revealing. 
In fact, let's begin even in the New Testament era. In Matthew 3, verse 2, John the Baptist, in the days of his preaching, made this statement, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That phrase, at hand, is used uniformly in the Holy Scriptures to refer to something that's not yet in existence, but it soon will be. It is at hand. Jesus, in the very next chapter, preached the identical message. Matthew 4, verse 17, He too said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those two statements alone challenge us to appreciate the church was not in existence in those days. How about Matthew 6, verse 10? Here the Lord, as he gave instruction on that model prayer, he said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And if we simply pause there, we notice Jesus in his prayer prayed for the coming of the kingdom. It had not yet come. But notice we are also ready to see that same text we noted earlier when he said, I will build my church. That's a future tense verb. The church had not yet come into being in Matthew 16, 18. At this point we might wonder, are there any verses later in the Bible that do give us information about the when? Thankfully the answer to that question is yes. In fact, return all the way back with me to Isaiah 2, verse 2. Let's piece together an interesting puzzle and see a thread that weaves all of this presentation together. In that text of Isaiah 2, verse 2, the inspired ancient prophet said, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and all nations shall flow unto it. The only reference in that entire passage to when is the prepositional phrase in the last days. When did the last days come and when did they in fact originate? If we had any answer to that, we would have a great measure with regard to the answer. Fortunately, we do have some statement about it, but let's proceed on the journey to see what it is. We noted earlier that John the Baptist preached about the kingdom being yet in the future. Even Jesus at one point, Matthew 16, said the same. However, we know we're becoming extremely close. In Mark 9, verse 1, as Jesus preached on that noble occasion, to a group of those listening, he said, There be some of you standing here which shall not taste of death until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, at this point, we can easily conclude, while Jesus preached on that occasion, there were some people alive then, Jesus said, who would still be alive when the kingdom was established. That's crystal clear from what the Savior said. And Matthew records the same in the latter verses of Matthew 16. At that point, notice, the statement made by Jesus was, kingdom would be established, near to hand, and the power would come. Jesus referred to that power again in Luke 24, verse 49. He said, Tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. One chapter later, in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, right before he ascended back to heaven, there from Mount Olivet, Jesus, in speaking to those gathered, said, that the power would come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me when the Holy Spirit comes on you in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. To put all that together, we see the following. There will be some still living, Jesus said in Mark 9, 1, 
when the kingdom was established. But Jesus said that kingdom would be established when the power would come upon them. In Acts 1 verse 8, the power would come upon them when the Holy Spirit came upon them. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we notice when the Holy Spirit came upon them. It says, And they were all gathered with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The coming of the Spirit had happened, and if Jesus was telling the truth, it was time for the kingdom. Notice, the kingdom was to come when the power came to the Holy Spirit, but the power had come. Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. Was the kingdom established? It absolutely was. For notice, by the time we reach verse 47 of that chapter, the church, which is the kingdom, was already in existence. It started in Acts chapter 2. There tells us when. Notice later in the New Testament how the character of the church was easily noted. No longer was it spoken of as a body that would one day come. It was already in, in its existence. In Colossians 1.13, as Paul wrote to the brethren in Colossae, he straightforwardly told them that they had been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. They were already in the kingdom. In Revelation 1, verse 9, we learn the apostle John was already in the kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, the Thessalonians were in the kingdom. Point is, we now know when the church began. It began on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of our Savior. Any religious body, any group of individuals who do not trace their heritage and the very point of their establishment to the Pentecost first, following the crucifixion of Jesus, cannot possibly be the church. It simply cannot be. But notice what does that then lead us to say. I've listed some dates at the bottom of that screen, at the bottom of that particular writing. What about a body of believers who trace their history to the year 1520 A.D.? As the Lutheran church does. Could they possibly, by their own admission, be the church? That's not the first Pentecost following the resurrection of our Savior. Or what about the year 1607, though that's early on in the history of our beloved land here in America. It is 16 centuries after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? But notice that's the very year that we learned that William Smith founded, established the Baptist Church. Or yet, what about the year 1872? That was the opening beginning by Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not our interest to besmirch or belittle the earnestness and sincerity of any. But it is to ask the question, can they trace their history, their name, their very integrity to the day of Pentecost that first followed our Savior's resurrection? If they can't, then they can't be the church. To very speak about the subject of when, and the subject of the name, and the subject of who founded it, perhaps also leads us to ask yet another question. Does the Holy Word of God give us any information about where the church began? You and I know today that various religious bodies have begun all over the world. There are those who have begun in our land. There are those who began significantly in the continent of Europe during the Reformation era. 
perhaps if we knew where Christ's church began, we would have one other amazingly powerful characteristic. For we can easily say that anybody, any group, any institution that did not begin at the biblically appointed place for the church cannot possibly be the church. Let's again consider another fact. A moment ago, we noted that in Isaiah 2 verse 2, it stated that in the last days is what the prophet Isaiah had declared for the when of that establishment. In Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 14, we heard read for us a moment ago verse 14. I would draw your attention to the two verses that followed. When Peter began to preach on that noble occasion, we remember at the outset that those who heard were not impressed with the grouping of the apostles who preached. In fact, in verse number 15, they accused the apostles of being drunken. They accused them of, in fact, speaking in a less than honorable fashion. In direct response to that, in verse 16, notice Peter quoted from the Old Testament and said, But this is that which was spoken to the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Isaiah had said the church would begin in the last days. Peter stood up on Pentecost and said this is the last days and this is the fulfillment of what Joel had said 770 years earlier. We thus have no question that the last days began had begun by the day of Acts chapter 2, by the day of that noble day of Pentecost following the resurrection of our Savior. Isaiah had spoken last days and Peter said we're now in them. Can we conclude from what else is stated anything about the where? We can indeed. Let's again begin that journey in the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers had spoken in tremendous and powerful clarity that the blessed kingdom, the body, that church to which the Old Testament pointed would begin in very notable city. It was the city of Jerusalem. Consider these texts with me. Back in Isaiah chapter 2 yet again. The very last phrase in verse number 3 of Isaiah 2 reminds us that that mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains and that all nations would flow unto it. But notice as he made reference to Mount Zion in that verse, he went on to say that in regard to Mount Zion, the law would go forth from where? Jerusalem. That law was to emanate, was to have its spreading point from that city of Jerusalem. We notice then that that church was to begin. It was to have its origination in the city of Jerusalem. But that isn't all. Micah in Micah 4 verses 2 and 3 said exactly the same thing. Two different prophets, and they spoke that that coming kingdom over which the Messiah would reign would have its establishment in the city of Jerusalem. One might have guessed Bethlehem, for the Savior would be born there, Micah 5 verse 2, but that was not to be. One might have guessed other noble cities like, for instance, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan capital was, but it was not to be. It was to be Jerusalem. As we wind down the time and the centuries later that would pass, when we come to the New Testament, what did Jesus declare? In Luke 24 again, verse 49, he told those apostles, Tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. We noted a moment ago that the power was to come when the Holy Spirit came, but all the while they were to be in Jerusalem. They were to be nowhere else. After Jesus ascended 
on the Mount of Olives in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. We read in verses 12 and 13 that following that event, they went back into Jerusalem, and there they were waiting when the events of Acts 2, verse 1 began. In fact, we notice so easily and carefully in Acts 2, verse 14, the very statement itself made by Peter. When Peter said, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem... He was in Jerusalem. They were gathered in Jerusalem as per the statement of the Old Testament. We've noted earlier in these studies that Acts chapter 2 was a scene in which they were observing that feast of Pentecost, the celebration. But the Old Testament had been very clear. Pentecost was to be celebrated as well as the other two major feasts at the location where God had placed His name. In Exodus 23, verses 23 and following, and Leviticus 23 as well, we learn where had God placed His name. It was to be at the location where the temple was. We learn in 1 Kings 9, verse 3, the temple was in Jerusalem. It was on Mount Zion. And thus it all comes together to tell us clearly that they were in Jerusalem at the events of Acts chapter 2. And there is where the church began. Is it not then possible to say that any organization, any group that does not trace its history, its starting point to the city of Jerusalem cannot possibly be the church? It is forbidden by the very law of God. What then does that say about various institutional characteristics of believers in our own land? For instance, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints claims two specific origins, one in Salt Lake City, one in the region up around New York, but is either one Jerusalem? The answer stands for itself, doesn't it? Or what about those in the Reformation movement such as the Church of England that began in London? Even though you and I may have the highest regard for London, England, even though we may appreciate the power and character of a historic and ancient city, it is not Jerusalem. And any organization that began there by its own decree, considering the statements of Acts 2, must not be the church. What about those organizations that can trace their history to some ancient cities in northern Africa? Even though those may be impressively powerful cities, they still aren't Jerusalem. The point that we're trying to make is that the Word of God has divided for us characteristics that anybody must, in fact, obey if it is to be the church. One, it must have originated in Jerusalem. Two, it must have originated on the first Pentecost following Jesus' resurrection. Three, it must have Jesus as both builder and head. Four, it must wear a name that is biblically appropriate and have within it the characteristics of paying homage, respect, and honor to Jesus the Christ. Any group that does not satisfy all of those criteria, not three or four is not enough. Two out of four is not enough. One out of four is not enough. It must be all of them as yea, all other characteristics that are revealed in the holy and divine will of God. As we noted at the outset, that car to which I referred, a silver Honda isn't enough. It had to be a silver Honda that furthermore was a CRV and have the correct license plate. Any one of the characteristics missing means it's not my car. 
Certainly also the God of heaven could well say, any characteristic missing is not my church. It doesn't belong to me. It was founded by somebody else or it was founded at a different time or it has someone else as its head and founder. Human hands never touched the blessed church of Christ. It was founded in the mind of God and brought into existence precisely when the God of heaven decreed. Human hands did not create its laws and did not legislate for it. God did that. And Christ, remember, said, You teach what I have told you. Those apostles were guided and led into all truth, John 16, 13, by the Holy Spirit of God. They weren't speaking their opinions or their thoughts or their feelings. To say all of these things leads us to some dramatic points of conclusion. With regard to this fifth lesson in our series of studies on the church, we have discussed these matters about the identity of the church. And we've learned that there are things that must be satisfied. And inasmuch as we have listed them today, we can rest assured that the blessed church of Christ, as we will in fact see in our lesson tonight, does in not only satisfy all of these, but in a very powerful way goes even beyond them to illustrate the grandness, beauty, and power of God. The question then becomes a personal one as we close our lesson today. If there is but one church, and if it has these characteristics, being a member of anything else is not going to be beneficial on the day of judgment. For Jesus only saves only the body. Ephesians 5 verse 23 are you a member of the body? Is your name enrolled in heaven in the Lamb's book of life? And furthermore, can we say as such you're an active member of that blessed body whose citizenship is in heaven? If you're not a member of the church and you have reached that age that you know Christ died for you, you know that you are one who is a sinner and that your sin sent him to the old cross at Golgotha, you need to come today and let him wash sin from your life so that you can be pure and clean and unblemished in every regard. Understand that in so doing you must believe in Jesus. Put your faith and confidence in him and furthermore repent of those sins in your life. In that act of repentance, you understand in a broken way what Christ did for you. At that point, just as that eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, you confess, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Upon that, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Acts 8, 37 and 38. That too you and I could do today. You could be baptized for the remission of your sins and those sins being washed away, you will be added to the church, Acts 2, 47. If you have not done that, a hymn of invitation has been selected and chosen, it would be our joy, and yea, our privilege to aid you in your response publicly. If you have at some point in the past become a member of the body, and you tasted the good word of God, Hebrews 6 verse 4, but for some reason you have fallen away from your first love, you have allowed the world too much room in your life, and furthermore, you have brought reproach perhaps upon the name of Christ and upon the church which is his body. Brothers and sisters are anxiously awaiting your return to faithfulness. Angels in heaven are anxiously awaiting too. If we could be of any assistance in praying on your behalf, we'd be honored to do that as well. If you need to respond in a public way, will you not let that happen today? Even while together we stand and while we sing.